Well, the question I've got for you today is this. Is it a good or a bad thing to have Christians in your city? Is it a good or bad thing to have Christians in your nation? Uh, in Scotland in the 1950s, uh, it was seen as a good thing. Lots of people went to church. Now in secular Scotland, 58% uh, of the population would now say that they had no religion. And so largely it's seen as irrelevant. So during the COVID lockdown at the start of the year, the uh, Scottish government did not tell essential services to shut down. Fire services, ambulance, um, police, supermarket workers kept working, but attending church was made illegal because church is seen as non-essential and irrelevant by many in our government. So many see it as irrelevant. Uh, others can also be critical of the institutions of church and can sadly point to real evidence of failures that have allowed uh, abuse, corruption to take place that have caused real harm. Critics can also point to tribal bigotry uh, between supposedly Protestant and Catholic groups played out in marching bands and football hooganism. That doesn't look good. But at the same time, it's interesting to me to see that public intellectuals are beginning to see the strong link between what you believe and how you behave. So Tom Holland, not the guy who plays Spider-Man, but the historian, in 2019 wrote uh, an incredible book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And he tells the story, his story really, as someone who was an atheist, an agnostic atheist really, um, that as he began immersing himself in the culture of the Greco-Roman world, as he read all the writings of it, he found it was profoundly disturbing to him. Uh, he saw that those societies were just rife with, with casual, uh, socially accepted cruelty towards the weak, uh, rape and sexual abuse towards the massive slave class was an unquestioned way of life, uh, the mass extermination of enemies was a matter of course. And as he read all that and, and, and felt the kind of the vibe of that culture, it just disturbed him. And it was then that he realized how much he'd be profoundly shaped uh, in his Western thought by Christianity and the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting to me to see that some, uh, even those who maybe would see themselves as more atheistic, are beginning to see how valuable Christianity's been informing uh, British society. So many of the things that we value today, uh, human rights, uh, the equality of women, the social justice for the poor and the disadvantaged, they're not obvious to every culture and society. Um, just observe what the Taliban will do as they apply, apply their interpretation of Sharia law in Afghanistan. That's why so many people are rushing to get out. Compare that with the impact of Christianity on our Western culture. Because actually, flowing out of the Bible's teaching, flowing out of the view that we are created in the image of God with dignity and value, we have the culture that we appreciate. So how should Christians engage with a society that's very uncertain about the values of Christianity. Well, that's where I think the teachings of the Apostle Paul to one of his Christian co-workers, Titus, is so valuable. How should the new Christians 
in the islands of Crete in the first century, surrounded by this kind of more brutal pagan society, how should they live? Well, if you've got Bibles on your apps or in front of you, you know, open up to Titus. And if you look at the very first verse, the very first sentence of Titus, you see that he's got his agenda for the whole letter. Let me, it should be on the screen. We can put it up there for you. It says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Do you see his agenda there in that very last line? Uh, what you believe affects how you behave. And this is true for everyone. So what is the impact of believing the Christian gospel? Well, truly believing the good news about Jesus will transform the way you live, Paul says uh, to Titus. Trusting gospel truth leads to a godly life. It's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, he says. Genuine believers of the Christian message show this in a transformed way of life. And each of the chapters in this book really explores what godliness looks like. First of all, chapter one with the church, in chapter two in the home, and in chapter three in society. So how should we live as Christians within a society that's a bit uncertain about Christianity? Well, I've got three points. I'm a preacher. I've got three points. Uh, there's a reminder in verses 1 and 2. Uh, there's some things to remember in verses 3 to 7. And uh, there's something to resolve in verse 8. And that's what I want us to briefly look at this morning. A reminder, things to remember, and a resolve. So the reminders in the first couple of verses. The reminder is this. Be conscientious and considerate citizens. Um, this is clearly what Paul had been teaching these people who'd become Christians in Crete. That's why he says to Titus, remind them of what I, what I taught them. Uh, that the call to godliness in their lives will affect how they live in society. Specifically, verse 1, be subject to rulers and authorities by being obedient and being ready to do whatever is good. And so whatever political party, whatever political system we live in, uh, in, in, in the nations that we live in as Christians, we're called to treat those in authority with respect and as far as we can be, to be law-abiding. We're called to be these conscientious citizens who engage positively and helpfully with, uh, you know, for us in Edinburgh, with the city chambers, with the um, local authorities, the Scottish Parliament, the British government, and so forth. But not only those with those in authority, but with everyone that we meet in our community. So look at verse 2 not to slander uh, others, but not to be argumentative. In fact, we're supposed to be uh, positively considerate, to show true humility. And so my Christian friends this morning, uh, here's my question to you. Is that how you are relating to people when you leave your home, when we leave the church today? Uh, is this how we're engaging with people on social media, in Snapchat, Facebook, and Twitter? Are we engaging with others in gentleness and graciousness and with consideration? And I reckon if the Christians in Crete in the first century needed this reminder, I reckon we probably do as well. 
Uh, in a sense, a government or a city should be delighted to have Christians within it because as they engage with them, they'll find that they're positive people wanting to make a positive good in the culture. So be conscientious and considerate citizens. But why? Why should we bother doing that? Why should you live that way? Well, the reasons are given for this godly behavior in verses 3 to 7. Uh, and having reminded them, there's two things he wants them to remember. So first thing he wants them to remember, we were once antisocial, verse 3. Look at how he describes uh, life in Crete in the first century. Look at how he describes what he and Titus and the Christians on Crete were like before they became Christians. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a really stark description, isn't it? Uh, it's all the more astonishing when you realize that Paul was a very religious man before he became a Christian. If you'd met him before he became a Christian, you'd meet this fine, upstanding influential Jewish leader. But this is what he says of himself. I was foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, and I lived in malice and hatred. That was his perspective on his life before he became a Christian. And if I want to be provocative this morning, I want to suggest to you that really it still pretty well describes modern day 21st century Britain. And this is God's assessment. Let's look at that list again. At one time, we too were foolish. Now, he's not saying that people who are not Christians are stupid. That would obviously be wrong. Paul himself was a scholar with a great intellect. Uh, just read his writings. The clarity of them shine forth even today. No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is this. With regard to knowing God, we were all without spiritual understanding. They were once foolish with regard to the things of God. Then he uses the word disobedient, and this primarily means disobedient towards God, disobeying uh, God's good standards for our lives. We choose to make up our own rules and run our own lives without God. Then he uses the word deceived, that we live oblivious to the real meaning and purpose of life, which is actually to know the God who created us and live for his glory, and yet Many people, most people don't live that way. We're deceived. We don't think that's the way to live. It's radically different to the perspective that we hear in our society that wants to say, look, there's no God, and we're here by accident, and every individual really has to define their own morality and meaning in life. And then he says, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And although we talk a lot about freedom and we prize freedom, Scratch beneath the surface and you discover there's lots of talks about people being enslaved. The statistics show it. A lot of people are enslaved through their addictions to gambling, alcohol, sex, pornography, uh, to, to drugs. And all the disastrous impacts of that in broken relationships and pain that flow from it. We're enslaved. And we live in malice and envy being hated and hating one another. Now, that might seem a bit strong, but just take time to read through the Sunday newspapers today, and you'll see many articles that say exactly this. Consider the hatred behind the mass shooting in Plymouth only a few weekends ago. Uh, see the nature of cyberbullying and how people are 
being victimized by internet trolls. And um, people are making the vilest threats of violence towards those that they disagree with. And if your thinking doesn't align with the current fads of how to think, well, there's no room for forgiveness. People are canceled and demonized. And I think this is not a bad description of where we're often at. We live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And even if you don't quite accept that, um, I think we need to confront the fact that this is how God sees us. Uh, The Bible says it's a perfect description of what we're like. And what I find astonishing about this bit of Titus 3 is that, well, what would you expect a holy God to do with such people in response? Well, I think verse 4 is such a surprising response. God has acted to bring, I, I think I'm waiting to hear judgment, but what it says is salvation. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. So remember, we were once antisocial, but remember too, but God saved us and changed us. That's what he wants to remind these Christians in Crete. Uh, Instead of God appearing as their judge in verse 4, it's the kindness and love of God our Savior appearing in Jesus Christ. Now, why did God do that? Because we were so lovable? Well, we've already seen that that's not the case. Verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. They, like us, deserve nothing except judgment, but God has shown them mercy. And not only had God saved them, but he'd also changed them. Look at how Paul describes uh, being saved in verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. I woke up with a head cold. I've tested myself. I haven't got COVID. I tested this morning, but I do have a bit of a head cold. A Christian is someone who has had a profound experience. An authentic Christian is um, someone who's experienced a life transformation, becoming born again, the Bible says. As this verse puts it, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible describes us as once being spiritually dead because of our sin, but God has made us alive. Our sinful behavior kind of corrupted us, defiled us, but this new life he gives washes us clean on the inside. So we were dirty with sin, but God makes us clean and acceptable before him. He scrubs us clean, washing us, drenching us with his Holy Spirit, as it says in this verse. And it's a a dazzling description of born-again Christianity. Uh, And it turns many perceptions upside down. I think still people today mistakenly believe if you claim to be a Christian, you're claiming to be a good person. Perhaps even claiming to be a morally superior person. But you see, being born again is not an arrogant statement. It's a stunning statement of how enslaved and foolish you once were. And how miraculously and undeservedly God has changed us. And born-again Christians, therefore, should be marked by true humility towards all people. Apart from God's grace, we'd be in the same shoes as everybody else. 
We sometimes use that phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, Christians are not called to be snooty moral policemen. Apart from grace, would we be any different? And here's the wonderful truth. Because salvation is all down to the mercy and the grace of God, there's hope for every person. However foolish, however disobedient, however deceived, however enslaved their lives may have been, there's hope for every single person in the mercy and the love of God. Now, you know, in a moment, the Holy Spirit can change you. There was Matthew, he'd grown up, he switched off, stopped listening to me. Uh, it didn't make any sense to him. But there's a moment on the mountaintop, he sees it. He's born again, he sees it. And the sermon's at least half interesting to Matthew now. Um, a person in a moment can be made right with God, justified by God's grace. Isn't that, isn't that what we long for, to be brand new people? When we lived in America, there was this TV show called Extreme Makeover. And um, they did more than put makeup on people and change their clothes. Uh, they went to have major surgery. They had major cosmetic surgery. Bits of them were enhanced. Other bits were sucked out. Fat was moved from one place to another places. And uh, faces were pulled back, tucked away into a grimace. And, and, and they had the full teeth done and everything was done. And um, it was an amazing show one level. But all that did was change the outside. All those enhanced body parts will once again sag. And uh, the real person on the inside has not changed. But God is in the business of doing something far greater than that to make you new on the inside to forgive our sins, to, to make us clean, to make us accepted before him, to renew us, to change us, to make us more loving and more considerate and more obedient and more ready to do what is good, to bring us into his family and make us heirs of eternal life. Look at verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. See, this is all part of God's amazing rescue, the result of his salvation. The Christian hope that's um, not wishful thinking, but a definite future. And I suppose my question to you is, have you experienced this yourself? Have you been born again? I'm not asking whether you're religious or, or moral or good. Have you been born again? Jesus spoke to a very moral religious leader uh, and uh, Nicodemus, and he says to him, you must be born again. Have you been born again? Uh, this morning, we've, we're going to see two examples. We've heard from them already, Matthew and Tom, of people who are getting baptized today because they're saying this has happened to them on the inside. They've become born again by the mercy of God. And that's why they're getting baptized today, to express publicly what has already happened in their lives. It's fitting that it's in a pool of water. It's kind of a spiritual bathtub, isn't it? That water's just regular water. It's not magical water. It's good Edinburgh water. Uh, but they're just showing outwardly what's happened on the inside, that God has washed them clean. He's renewed them by his spirit. That their old life of living apart from God is being buried. And as they come out of the water, they're saying, my new life is now lived 
for Christ and with Christ in a resurrection life that will go on forever. That's what they're saying as they get baptized today. And if all I've said just sounds just intriguing, but you've still got lots of questions, come and ask us. There's a connect corner on the way out. Say I'm interested to find out more. Give us your details. And we'd be very happy to be in touch or talk to me or Matthew or Tom or Ashley. Uh, we'd be very delighted to share with you more. So a reminder, be conscientious and considerate citizens, Paul reminds uh, the people in Crete through Titus. Remember, you were once antisocial, but God saved us and changed us. And then finally, resolve, verse 8, resolve to live a saved life of doing good. If you look back at verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So there's something worth reminding ourselves about this morning. That's why I've done it. Uh, this is a trustworthy saying. These are excellent and profitable for everyone. And so because of these amazing gospel truths of what God has done for us, uh, in sending Jesus to die for us and, and put his spirit within us to change us. In light of all that gospel truth, resolve to live out your saved life of doing good. That's what he's saying. If we've trusted in God and his gospel, then this new saved life that's full of eternal hope will express itself day by day in a careful devotion of doing what is good. A careful devotion to a godly life in our church in our home, in our society. And really, that's the challenge to, to Matthew and uh, Tom today. In fact, it's the challenge to um, every person here who calls himself a follower of Jesus. Are we living this authentic Christian life of godliness? We don't do these things to make ourselves Christians. We've seen today it's all because of his mercy. But because we are born again, we live out this sort of life in thankfulness. And as we consider God's mercy, in a sense, that's the joy of coming Sunday by Sunday, isn't it? To be reminded of all that God has done for us in Jesus, we find fresh reasons for gratitude and praise and thanksgiving to go out and live a life of transformation. That's the best way I think we can help Edinburgh and Scotland seeing that to have Christians is a, is a positive good by being that good in our lives and for our lives to be positive signposts to Jesus our eternal hope let's pray Father we thank you that this uh, message of the first century is as relevant to us today for Jesus Christ died and rose again and is Lord over all and we thank you that even today, your Holy Spirit is changing and transforming lives. Indeed, Lord, so many here know that transformation. And we thank you for your grace that is evident in Tom and Matthew's life. Please bless and encourage them uh, as they are baptized now. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>